Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andy Lucian. Hello, everyone. Today we're joined by Michael K. Schaefer. Michael is a Civil War historian, author, newspaper columnist, and instructor. He also remains a member of the Society of Civil War Historians, historian to the Civil War Western Theater, and Georgia Association of Historians. He has a BA and a master's degree with honors in military history, Civil War studies, and he frequently lectures to various groups and currently teaches Civil War courses at Kennesaw State University's College of Graduate and Professional Education, as well as at Emory University. Today, Michael sits down with us to discuss his book, Today, Michael sits down with us to discuss his book, Day by Day, Through the Civil War in Georgia. We talk about the war in Georgia and what it was like to write this book and what you can expect if you pick up a copy. I hope you enjoy this discussion. Okay, well, hello, everybody. Uh, Today, we are sitting down with author and professor Michael Schaefer. How are you today? Andy, I'm fine. How about you? I'm doing very good. Uh, We were just having a great conversation before this. I'm looking forward to continue it, uh, talking a bit about your book bit about you, the war in Georgia. Looking forward to this discussion. Uh, So am I. I'm happy to have an opportunity to sort of share a little bit about the story on how the book came to life, if you will. And um, so hopefully your listeners will find the story interesting. And um, so I'm happy to uh, to be able to spend time with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Very excited. I know they're going to like this. So well, let's let's start with you. Uh, you want to introduce yourself a bit? Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into the Civil War. Yes, I, a, a, a very, I think it was a professor that I had a long time ago. I'm not going to start talking about years. I will date myself. <laughs> uh, but he told me, always have a strong opening and a strong closing and keep the two close together. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll have a strong opening and a strong closing and keep the two close together as far as me, because it's more important, I think, to talk about the book. But uh, as you said, my name is Michael Schaefer. Uh, people often call me Mike, and which is fine. And I was um, barely born in the state of Tennessee. And I'll explain briefly. I was born in Bristol. Any of you who have ever visited Bristol, or if you've seen the Geico commercial on TV... <laughs> With the with the gecko standing in the middle of State Street with one foot in Tennessee and the other foot in Virginia, the state line literally splits the city in two. The old Bristol Hospital where I was born, my mom and dad were in her room on the Virginia side waiting for me to enter this world. And it came time for me to pop out, I guess. So they wheeled her down the hall, crossed the Tennessee state line into the (laughs) delivery room. So I was actually still in her, carried from Virginia to Tennessee (laughs) and was born in the state of Tennessee. Thank goodness. Many years ago, they tore the old hospital down. Why they ever build it with a state line running right through the middle, I have no idea. So that people can tell cool stories like that. That's why. <laughs> pro- pro- probably. But it used to cause all kinds of problems between the governments way back, late 1800s, early 1900s. The governments 
uh, uh, t Bristol, Tennessee, Bristol, Virginia, did not cooperate. True stories. You could go on one side of the, the street or the other. Let's say you go on the Tennessee side and rob a bank. All you had to do was step across the state line into Virginia and the Tennessee police who may have watched you rob the bank would not pursue you. <laughs> Firemen would sit on one side of the line or the other and watch a structure burn down because it was not on their side. So it wasn't their responsibility. Thankfully, a long time ago, way before I came into the world, they cleaned all that up. So now they will don't try anything illegal, regardless of which <laughs> side you're on, because they will come after you. <laughs> so um, uh, I've moved around, lived in several different places in the country, Tennessee, Virginia, North Carolina, California. Um, I was living in Virginia again when I came to Georgia and to Kennesaw, Georgia, where I live in early 2011 uh, to take a job at Kennesaw State University. At the time, I was the assistant director of the Center for the Study of the Civil War Era. Some of your listeners may be familiar with Dr. Brian Steele Wills. Uh, Brian was then and today still is the director of the center. Uh, Brian and I knew each other both when we were in Virginia. So that's what brought me to Georgia. And um, I was full time at the university until the, the latter part of 2014. And, you know, I'm getting older. And, you know, I told my wife, I said, I've got all these projects I want to do. At the time, I was writing a weekly column for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, during the sesquicentennial or the 150th of the American Civil War. So I'm writing all that stuff and doing the research at night because when I was full time at the university, you know, I was there all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have time to do much of anything else. And that's not a complaint. It's just it was the situation. And I decided that I wanted to step back and just part time. So I, I still teach on a part time basis at the College of Graduate and Professional Education for both Kennesaw State University here in Kennesaw and for Emory University in Atlanta. So again, both of them on a part-time basis. I taught for Emory earlier today. Uh, so it's much easier if you're talking about doing something that's, you know, five or six hours a week versus, you know, eight or 10 hours a day every day. Mm -hmm. So uh, it ena it's enabled me to do a lot more writing and research and talking to groups like this one and traveling around the country pre-pandemic and a little bit post-pandemic and so forth. So um, anyway, that sort of in a nutshell, I was trying to think of a, a strong close, <laughs> but at least I kept the two fairly close together. <laughs> well, you can uh, have a strong close uh, at the end of the podcast. We'll there you go. The yeah, there you go. There, yes. So you take this step away um, from teaching so much to work on writing and you write this book day by day through the Civil War in Georgia. So maybe tell us a little bit about this and kind of how it came to be. Well, this is actually my third book. Uh, the, my first book was on the county where I was living in Virginia, Washington County. It's in the southwestern part of the Old Dominion. 
and I wrote a book on Washington County during the war. There weren't any great battles fought there like you and I were talking about, you know, in various parts of the country. But Washington County was noted for eventually by 1863, Saltville, aptly named, um, was the sole remaining source of salt for the entire Confederacy. So all of the states of the Confederacy leased well space in Saltville, Virginia, and including Georgia. And there's some in the book about that. There was plenty of salt there, still there. Um, and you can ask me how I know this. I know <laughs> it because of the research for the book. They, they still do, we were talking about reenactments earlier, and they still do reenactments of this. It's a fascinating thing to watch. They go beneath the surface of the earth. They bring up this brine, and it is 99.97% pure salt. Years ago, they used to fill swimming pool, a swimming pool in Saltville with this brine. And basically anything they could find to throw in the pool would float. <laughs> That's so when they do the reenactments, and it was how they made salt during the war, um, they boil it for hours and hours and hours in these large kettles. And you watch it like seemingly all day. And you think nothing is ever going to happen. I'm just watching bubbles come to the surface. <laughs> and then like flipping a switch instantly. It, and I do mean instantly. It crystallizes. And it is the whitest, purest salt that you've ever seen. And they have to pour it out, let it dry. Then they bag it during the war. They, brag it, they would bag the dried salt. They would take it over to the railroad. They'd build a spur line off of the main rail line traveling up through Southwest Virginia. Actually, you and I could have gotten on a train in Atlanta and rode up the Western Atlantic into Chattanooga, turned to the Northeast, went up through Knoxville, through Bristol, on up through Southwest Virginia, eventually made our way to Lynchburg, and we would not have had to change trains any at all. And then once we arrive in Lynchburg, you change trains. So. The biggest problem they had during the war, there was plenty of salt, like I said, it's still there, um, was getting it out because the railroads fell in such a state of disrepair. So it became a very, uh, very much of a target for the various federal commanders in eastern Kentucky, uh, a couple of different raids trying to take out the salt. And not too far north of the county was the sole remaining supply of lead in Austinville, which is outside of Withville, Virginia, in With County, Virginia. It's where all the lead came from that they used to mold and cast mini balls uh, for the Confederacy. So anyway, the, you know, there, the takeaway from all that is this. There doesn't have to be a huge battle fought somewhere for the area not to have had some significance on one of many different fronts. If mm -hmm. it was industry or minerals or food stuff, either crops or food on the hoof in terms of cattle. Per the 1860 census, there were more cows in Florida than there were people. So it doesn't mean Florida is not important. <laughs> um, they, they needed the beef and they got a lot of the beef specifically for the Army of Northern Virginia transported via rail, uh, taking the shortest route that I 
illustrated a couple of minutes ago until Major General Ambrose Burnside captured Knoxville in the middle part of 1863. So now all of a sudden, and this certainly impacted Georgia, which we'll get to in just a second, uh, you had to go around the mountain two or three times to get to the other side if you wanted to travel from out here in the Western Theater, which was everything basically geographically from the Appalachian Mountains to the Mississippi River. On the other side of the river was the Trans-Mississippi Theater. And the Eastern Theater eventually primarily was focused on Northern Virginia, where Grant and Meade and the Army of the Potomac were going up against R.E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. My second book, uh, I edited a uh, fascinating uh, cavalry trooper that was in the 1st Virginia Cavalry. I met his great-granddaughter, and she had his seven volumes of handwritten journals that he wrote about his service with Jeb Stewart and John Singleton Mosby and all of the battles that he participated in as a cavalry trooper. So wow. that brings us to book number three, Day by Day Through the Civil War in Georgia, which, to be honest, Andy, I had not planned to start writing in the latter part of March of 2020. My previous book, the edited work from Thomas Colley, he was the trooper in the 1st Virginia Cav, had only been out less than a year. And I had all these talks scheduled with roundtables and so forth all over the country uh, to talk about that book. So, you know, if you've got a horse that's just relatively out of the barn, you continue to ride the horse, you right. know, for a while before you take off on a, a new one. So I had not planned on starting this book. But as we know now, the pandemic came along and everything shut down. My entire calendar was erased for the balance of 2020. So I've never been one to, I, it drives me nuts to sit and just twiddle my thumbs. <laughs> I have to be busy and working on something. And um, even if it's reading uh, a book on Gettysburg, for example. <laughs> um, so uh, I decided uh, I've been doing the research, you know, back in early 2011 when I first came to Georgia, and especially when I was writing the articles for the Atlanta Journal and the the monthly column I write for Civil War News. Uh, a lot of your listeners probably subscribe to Civil War News. And um, so uh, working on all those things and many others, I would run across tidbits of information here and there that I would file away, thinking in the back of my mind, because I teach a course on the war in Georgia, and it is incredibly problematic to find a textbook. And I'm not saying this is the textbook, although I have taught the course, I'm teaching it now, using, and I hated to teach a course using one of my own books, <laughs> but that was sort of the driver um, behind the book coming into being, because it, it it's very difficult to, to find a textbook, as I'm sure you know. It has to be affordable. It has to be available. It has to be mm -hmm. returnable. You know, there's all these check marks that the book has to meet. And, you know, I would find and have used some very fine books. Uh, Albert Castile's Decision in the West probably the finest book, in, in my opinion, a lot of people agree, some may disagree, 
uh, at least to this point, that's been published on the Atlanta campaign of 1864. And I had used that. It's a wonderful book. I've read it several times. I probably will read it again at some point. It's that good. But if you have a book like Castile's Decision in the West or any of the other books that have been written on the Atlanta campaign or Sherman's March to the Sea or sometimes referred to as the Savannah campaign, we're refighting all these battles and everything is very land focused. Nothing, nothing about the naval activity along the coast of Georgia and vice versa. And there have not been many books published that may be on my next to-do list. I'm thinking seriously about it. There have not been many works published on the naval activity along the coast of Georgia mm -hmm. during the American Civil War. And that was the thing. People always say, what most surprised you in researching and putting the book together? Without question, it was the amount of activity almost on a daily basis. And though we're not talking about huge engagements that had 30 or 40,000 people on each side combating one another, but, you know, anytime uh, a federal ship sailed up one of the inlets and tried to destroy some of the salt works, for example, uh, and you had, you know, a handful of people killed or wounded in an exchange of fire, you know, one person killed is one too many. So those things tend to slip through the cracks, if you will. So I was looking for something that I could use in, in teaching about the war in Georgia that covers not only the boots on the ground, but the very important naval activity along the coast and also address the social, political, and economic issues that were going on, what it was like everyday civilians at home, uh, women, children, uh, men, older men, too old for active military service, or perhaps invalid uh, individuals that some had been wounded earlier in the war, or some had been wounded in other manners many years earlier. So uh, it's worked pretty well so far. And so when I first decided, okay, I'm going to dive in, even though I hadn't planned to, and start working on this book, um, little did I know that it would become, and I'm so happy that I did uh, start in Mar late March of 2020, that it would be a therapeutic exercise for me because about halfway through the process of writing the narrative, I was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Wow. And I had to undergo surgery in April of 2021 I'll spare everyone all the details, uh, but needless to say, I was uh, out of action for a while, and then I was physically, it took me a while, uh, two or three months, to even get to the point that I could physically sit down again at my desk at a keyboard and start writing, and so, you know, a form of therapy, uh, a public service announcement for your listeners, if anyone out there eats Rolades or Tums like they're going to stop making them tomorrow, like I did for many years. Please talk to your doctor or at minimum, go to a pharmacy or over the counter at any place that sells medicine, Walmart, supermarkets, whatever. They make, it's very inexpensive. It's called Omeprazole. 
and it greatly reduces the acid that your stomach produces because the acid, if it gets too high and too out of control, can do very, very harmful things to one's body. So public service announcement for the day. Don't wait because you don't want to hear your doctor say the C word. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it served as a form of therapy. And, you know, I continued, fin actually finished uh, the manuscript in early December of 2020. Submitted it to, I already knew that Mercer University Press in Macon here in Georgia. Uh, they had agreed to publish the book. They were very, very interested. Uh, they too had never seen an account like this. So, uh, but they were also, thankfully to them, were very understanding of the medical situation that I was dealing with. So uh, we were able to still meet the deadlines and make the schedules work. So having all this research information, as I mentioned, Andy, that I'd gathered over the years, before I wrote the first sentence, I started thinking this could quickly and easily get way out of control uh, <laughs> because uh, I knew what I wanted to do, and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, cover events here in Georgia, very singular focus on the state of Georgia. So if you want to read about the Battle of Vicksburg, don't buy this book unless it's moved. I don't think Vicksburg is in Georgia. I believe it's still in Mississippi. So it's very focused on Georgia, and that's for a reason. I wanted it to be exclusively about Georgia. So this, I put stakes in the sand, uh, parameters that I placed on myself to try to draw some method around what could have quickly become maddening. And so those parameters were, okay, I'm going to approach this in a chronological manner. It seems to me if you want the reader to sort of relive the experience that people were dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, it helps to sort of begin at the start. And we now have the luxury of knowing what happened, but you can't deal with history in that manner. You can't start at the end and work backwards right. because none of us, you nor I, can say with 100% certainty what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or a month from now or a year from now. And neither could they. So I decided to approach it in chronological manner. And you have to have a start and an end because there was somewhat of a page limitation uh, with the publisher. I, you know, it couldn't be uh, a 900 uh, page treatment like we were talking about earlier. And uh, so I decided to start in the latter part of 1860 when things really started ramping up initially on the political front with specific actions that Georgia's wartime governor, Joseph E. Brown, began to take while Georgia was still in the Union, before Georgia voted to secede in early January of 1861, becoming the fifth state uh, to secede from the Union. So I, I got those sticks in place. I'm going to approach it chronologically. I know I'm going to start latter part of 1860. There has to be an end point. Well, the the majority of the certainly the military action, the fighting, 
with the armies and the navies basically drew to a close in the middle part of 1865. But I go through the end of 1865 and even beyond uh, up to the middle part of 1870 when Georgia became the final former state of the Confederacy to be readmitted to the Union. The only state that applied for readmission, accepted, kicked out, applied again, accepted, <laughs> kicked out, and then reapplied for the third time before she was finally the state readmitted to the Union in the middle part of 1870. So I had the beginning and the end. And then I decided, and I didn't realize how, well, maybe I did to some degree, but it was proved to be more challenging than I probably fully appreciated. Any particular entry, like if we pick today, November 22nd, of any given year that's covered in the book, anything that I put in the book for November 22nd using today's date, uh, or you can pick any date you want, um, it, whatever is listed is something that either an individual said on that date, if it was a politician speaking to an audience, uh, a pastor addressing his congregation, or a military officer uh, giving verbal orders to his respective command. So it, it had to be, it had to fit that first check mark. Number two, for if it went in as an entry, if it wasn't something someone said on that date, it was something an individual wrote. Again, either General Sherman writing a report to Grant in the middle of the Atlanta campaign in 1864 from some point here in Georgia, or something a politician wrote, or something a school teacher wrote, or a newspaper editor wrote on that particular day. And then finally, uh, it could be an entry on that day if it was an event that took place somewhere here in the state, either military action, army or navy, or political activity, or uh, various lifestyle things on the home front. So with those stakes in the sand and the beginning and the ending uh, measures in place, I began the writing process and uh, had a few maps commissioned for the book. I used quite a few period uh, newspaper illustrations, uh, drawings, paintings to sort of accompany the narrative and sort of have some visual of various things that readers may not be that familiar with. Uh, often, if you can can see an image, it helps one have a much better understanding of, of what they're reading about. So that's sort of how the book came to be. Um, it was published, released in February of 2022, early February. And one little um, interesting story that I think I haven't shared this with a whole lot of people, but I thought your group would enjoy hearing it. Um, when I sent the manuscript to the publisher, along with the maps and all the various images and so forth for the book, um, the editor called me 
as soon as he received the information and said, this looks great, but I have to ask this question. Why in the world? <laughs> you always know if an editor says, why in the world? <laughs> you need to hold on to the arm of your chair. And I probably did. Um, why in the world are you including the various phases of the moon? And I told him, I said, well, let me try to explain this. First of all, how I was able to get to that information with some degree of accuracy. I was fortunate to find some original copies of what was a very famous almanac that was published here in Georgia. It was called Greer's Almanac. Believe it or not, they continued publishing through last year, 2021. Wow. was their final year and the last remaining Greer, I guess. I don't know that that was still the individual's name, but the last remaining person that was keeping the almanac going passed away. So as a subscriber, I got a letter in the mail that, you know, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to continue Greer's almanac, which is sad because it was pretty cool. But it was very interesting to look through the almanacs the original editions from 1861, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And all these measurements like the tides, high tides, low tides, so on and so forth, were taken at Tybee Island, which worked perfectly. I mean, it was a Georgia almanac. It had distribution beyond Georgia, but it virtually every home, one would have been hard-pressed to went to any home here in Georgia during the 19th century and not found at least one copy, perhaps more than one, of Greer's Almanac. So they had all the phases of the moon. And I told the editor, if you and I are officers in the Army, blue or gray, and we're leading responsible for safe conduct of our troops, getting them to the field of battle strategically, hopefully, uh, engaging and executing the battle plan, I, pro I can promise you they had a pretty good understanding of the weather conditions, which could be incredibly problematic, as Sherman encountered in trying to move his 100,000 or so soldiers, thousands and thousands of horses and mules and many supply wagons, ambulance wagons, et cetera, et cetera. When it rained for 21 consecutive days, starting in late May, up through the mid latter middle part of June, just prior to the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in 1864. So weather was important. And they also had a pretty good idea of, is it a full moon tonight or is there no moon tonight or a new moon tonight? Because they didn't plan to conduct nighttime fighting, but we all know occasionally it happened, especially if you initiated hostilities rather late in the day. Certainly, you know, they didn't have daylight savings time then. We probably aren't going to have it much longer either. But um, anyway, that's another story for another time. <laughs> but they had a pretty good idea of, you know, okay, it's five o'clock. We had planned to start fighting four hours ago. But now is the time we must move. And we've got an hour or so of daylight left. And if you know there's a full moon, and depending upon the weather, of course, if it's clear and there's a full moon, uh, you might be able to continue to fight with at least some degree of visibility. So for officers with land-based troops, it was important 
if you and I were in the federal or Confederate Navy and responsible for these ships along the coast, it was critical, must-know information. You lived and or sometimes died by knowing or not knowing the timing of the tides, high tides, low tides, weather conditions, and most definitely the phases of the moon. Early on, when the United States was trying to put the blockade in place, which was pretty porous for the first couple of years of the war, and in the north, as they were able to get more and more ships under Naval Secretary Gideon Wells' direction, the blockade got much better. But Andy, if you and I had a boat that we had sunk every penny we had into buying a boat and we're somewhere along the coast of Georgia and by golly, we're going to run the blockade. <laughs> and early on, we could our odds of success were pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a degree of common sense involved in anything. And by the way, and then I'll leave the blockade. If you and I could make two successful runs, meaning we made it through the blockade, we went to the Bahamas or Bermuda or perhaps Cuba, and we picked up a boatload of goods and brought them back to the coast of Georgia and that sold them. If we could do that twice, you and I are filthy rich. We can probably get rid of our boat and not have to worry about trying to run the blockade anymore. Mm -hmm. But so where does common sense come into play? If let's say you're the captain of the boat, Andy, I'm following your orders and you say we're going out tonight. If tonight happens to be a full moon, I probably would say, assuming I have the guts to say it, uh, <laughs> and I probably would. Uh, I would probably say, well, Captain Andy, sir, uh, there is a full moon tonight. So if we try to make our way out of Sapelo Island, for example, or Cumberland Island or Ossabaw or any of the various islands along the coast and the inlets and the sounds and so forth, don't you think it might be better if we wait a couple of weeks and we can do this when there's a new moon, meaning it's going to be very dark. And back in those days, and still on most of the outer islands of Georgia today, if you visit them at night, uh, you have a beautiful view of the sky because there's little to no lighting, artificial lighting, mm -hmm. uh, to obstruct your view. So that's where the common sense came into play. And they, uh, you know, talk about you as a captain every morning when you got out of your bunk, I'm positive that you referenced, and they had charts and so forth, north and south. They knew the weather forecasts. They knew the high tides, the low tides, and they definitely knew the phases of the moon. So uh, that's why that, and once I explained that, the editor said, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and um, a lot of people who've, who've read the book have told me that they had never really given a lot of thought to that. And, um, but it was something, especially when I got my hands on those almanacs that I thought would add merit to the book. Uh, in addition to, you know, any particular in entry, obviously you have the date and you have the day of the week. Why is that important? In most cases, not really so much, but 
I wanted to put the days of the week because if you're reading about something that took place on a Sunday, you can always have in the back of your mind, maybe something didn't quite go as planned. That was not always the case, but generally as a rule of thumb, they tried not to initiate military action on the Sabbath. It didn't always work out that way as, as we know, and as they found out, but I just thought it would be helpful to have that. Also included uh, the holidays that were commonly um, celebrated in the United States during that part of the 19th century. A lot of people were shocked to find out, yes, they celebrated Halloween and Valentine's Day. Uh, of course, Christmas and Easter, obviously the holy days, uh, and had celebrated them in this country for many years before the American Civil War. So um, you, you'd get, in addition to whatever someone said or wrote or whatever event happened on that day, you know the date, you've got the day of the week, and you have uh, one of four phases of the moon, either uh, the full moon, uh, first, I always get these out of order, uh, full moon, first quarter, new moon, last quarter. I think that's the right order, but... <laughs> Uh, anyway, I want to fact check you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, please do because I'm probably wrong. But um, anyway, you have the the phases of the moon. So I, I think you know as you travel through the war, as these things happened, and if, for example, you read about something that Governor Brown did in late December of 1860, well, nobody knew at the time. But as you move through the narrative and you arrive along February or March of 1861 and read about additional things that have taken place, it adds a lot more uh, credence, if you will, to Governor Brown's actions from late December of 1860. So that's sort of how the book is laid out and, and how it flows through the entire period of the war on events on all those fronts, uh, and including the home front and the social issues, political, economic issues, a lot of the same things we deal with today. Sometimes when I'm reading the morning paper, I'm like, wait a minute, I just read this in the New York Times from April of 1864. <laughs> you know, you change a few names, it's the same story. I mean, this. It, it, normally politicians arguing about something and, uh, you know, some things never change. Yeah, so right. that in, in, in essence is how the book came to be and how I've sort of designed the flow, if you will, to make my way through the research and make some sense out of all the material and take the reader on a journey from start to finish on all fronts of the war and the ramifications of the war here in the Empire State of the South, Georgia. And where did you get this research? Uh, how did you go about researching and finding all these events? A lot of times, Andy, I'd be working on, as I mentioned, another project, and I might be going through a period newspaper. You know, there, Georgia, and I think this is accurate, I believe Georgia has the richest collection of any state of Civil War period newspapers 
that have been digitized. So unlike years ago, when we used to have to go into the archive somewhere and spend forever uh, <laughs> reeling through uh, a microfilm reader, looking at newspaper images page by page by page, there's nowhere to enter a keyword to search. You just sort of had to have a general idea of the time period of whatever you're researching, when it took place. And you just had to spend a whole lot of blood, sweat and tears going through uh, reels of microfilm of newspapers. Mm -hmm. But Georgia has and you can search online for historic Georgia newspapers. The URL for the, the particular site is quite long, so I don't try to remember it. I just tell people to search for historic Georgia newspapers and you'll find it. It's part of the Digital Library of Georgia. And so I'd be looking for, maybe I'd run across, um, you know, I use the official records. I have the 128 volumes of the official records of the armies, and I have the 30 volumes of the official records of the navies. And I'd get a lot of information uh, from the official records. And then, you know, I would sort of narrow the focus a little bit and I could go, you know, since some of the this I was finishing during the pandemic to augment some of the material that I'd collected in person over the years. I was able, courtesy of today's Internet and a lot of archives digitizing their holdings, uh, it's pretty awesome when you can type in a search word and you're looking at a screen full of newspaper pages in front of you. Mm -hmm. And you can go through and sort of drill into the material. So, uh, you know, I used a lot of official records, uh, like the Army and the Naval records that I mentioned. I use things like the Southern Historical Society papers, uh, Confederate Veteran Magazine, which was a very popular magazine. Uh, I used the Battles at Leaders series, uh, a lot of former typically officers, but not in all cases, uh, wrote uh, these articles for these publications, many of them just shortly after the war, and some wrote, you know, several years later, but they were there and they participated in these events. They were part of what was going on. So you, you try to let their words tell the story of what they saw and what they participated in and how they were almost killed or most of their command maybe was killed or very seriously wounded and, you know, access to diaries uh, in various archival holdings. Some of those have been digitized, some have not, some have been published. Um, getting access through, again, archives of various letters written uh, here in Georgia. And, you know, it's, it, it became somewhat challenging especially soldiers on the front line, because by the end of 1861, Governor Brown was able to report in his annual message to the state legislature in Milledgeville, which was the wartime capital of Georgia. Atlanta did not become the capital of the state until I think it was late 1867, maybe early 1868. But Milledgeville was the wartime capital. And Governor Brown was able to report by the end of 1861, Georgia already had over 40,000 troops in the field. Well, guess where the vast majority of them were? 
they were in Virginia. Because early on, all of the states of the Confederacy, you know, the first year of the war, little roughly year of the war, it was on a volunteer basis. And Andy, you and I, you know, if we were healthy adult white males in the South, uh, unfortunately at the time because of the horrible institution of slavery, uh, you know, African-American males were not eligible uh, certainly for active military service. So if you and I were able-bodied white males of military age being somewhere early on, maybe between uh, 21 and, say, 35 or so, our greatest fear was there's going to be this big battle and we're going to miss it. Because at the very beginning, everyone north and south, really thought there would be one big battle. There would be a winner and a loser. And I guess they thought everybody would go home and the ball game would be over. <laughs> and, and our greatest fear truly was that battle is going to take place and we're not going to be there to participate in it. So the spirit of volunteering was incredibly strong. And there's information in the book about, you know, Governor Brown really took the bull by the horns in many cases, you know, he served four consecutive terms as governor of Georgia. He was first elected in 1857. He was reelected in 1859. And he was reelected two more times during the war, once in 1861 and then finally in 1863. He was not able to fully serve his fourth term because the war ended and the government, added it, it, as it had existed, here in Georgia, basically ceased to exist. That's when, thankfully, early on, it was Major General George Thomas that was in charge of the military district that included Georgia. And Thomas was pretty lenient and very helpful in getting a lot of food into the state to feed civilians and wounded soldiers and anyone that was on the verge of starving because there was no food to be had. The trains were not running. Boats were not coming in. You and I are out of business with our blockade running. <laughs> Darn it. By, the, by the end of the war, we've been out of business for a while. <laughs> and um, so uh, it, it was difficult. And, and General Thomas deserves a lot of credit uh, for having somewhat of a soft hand. I mean, he was restoring law and order, if you will, I mean, we had to go to the polls as Georgians and elect new legislatures, members, and they had to go to Milledgeville. They had to write a new constitution for the state. They had to elect uh, two members for the Senate and members for the House of Representatives, ratify the 13th Amendment, pack everything up, and head off to Washington, and off they go, and they walk into the Senate chambers, and I think the first person everyone saw was Alexander Stevens, who was the former vice president of the Confederacy. And he was one that Georgians had elected to serve in the Senate. And in the United States Senate, they basically said, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, you got to be kidding us. <laughs> the former vice president of the Confederacy serving in the Senate, we don't think so. So they basically sent him packing. And, um, you know, that led to doing everything all over again. Uh, eventually a second time and a, then a third time. 
before Georgia was readmitted, being the last state, as I said earlier, in the middle part of 1870. So, you know, even though it's a in the narrative follows through in chronological fashion, I don't want people to think about it's boring and bunch of dates Mm -hmm. because that's the lazy way to teach history. And we've all had, myself included, you know, a long time ago, you know, you have a history class and your final exam is memorization of a bunch of dates. Mm-hmm. Well, that that makes history incredibly boring. And and history is about the passion and the people. And I found, I'll share this with you. Um, I pulled this out for a totally different reason, but since we're on this path, I'll share it with your listeners an African-American author in this country, very famous, a lot of your listeners and you too probably familiar with James Baldwin. Uh, I don't believe Mr. Baldwin is still with us. I think he has passed on, but um, he was a very prolific and a very high profile and excellent writer. And I ran across this quote one day this week. I'd never seen this before from him. And he said, history is literally present in all that we do. It is to history that we owe our frame of reference and identities and our aspirations. And I think he said far better than I ever could of what makes history still alive. I mean, compared to other things we study, you know, ancient Greece, Rome, et cetera, the things that happened thousands of years ago, The American Civil War, now about 160 years ago, still seems very recent. Mm -hmm. And as we were chatting uh, before we started the program, you know, it's so easy, regardless of where you live in the country, you can visit these battlefields. I mean, they're in a lot of our backyards. And you take something that took place a relatively short time ago, and you don't have to have a passport like some of my friends who are World War One, World War II historians, always begging me to go with them to <laughs> Normandy or somewhere. And it's not that I don't have an interest in those particular conflicts, but, you know, I focus exclusively on the American Civil War, and I tell them, you know, I don't have to have a passport to go to Kennesaw Mountain or <laughs> to Pickett's Mill or Tunnel Hill or wherever, Uh, Fort Pulaski or any of the other Civil War historic sites here in the state of Georgia and walk the ground where events played out, you know, relatively short 160 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what makes history real. And hopefully in the book, I've been able for the readers to to be able to uh, better understand what people were trying to deal with. You got, certainly as the war progressed, and by the time you arrived to 1864, you have a whole lot of boots on the ground here in Georgia with the fighting of the Atlanta campaign, and then eventually beginning in mid-November, Sherman's Savannah campaign or the March to the Sea. So you got a lot of military activity, but even before uh, the first boots are on the ground here in Georgia, you're already starting to feel the hardships of the war. If you're a teacher that's trying to teach school or colleges and university, I mean, the University of Georgia basically shut down 
-hmm. all the students, it was male school at the time, all the students quit school to join the army. And most of the professors did too. So you have this school, but you don't have any students. And if you did, you don't have anyone to teach. So in the case of what's now UGA and other hospitals or, or other colleges in Georgia, many of them eventually became hospitals. Uh, you've got the brick and mortar and you need to treat these thousands and thousands of wounded and you have to do it somewhere. So if you have a college or a university that's no longer in use, um, we'll put it to use. So, but it's easy to forget about those things if you're exclusively focused on where Sherman's forces were at 3.15 p.m. on July 22nd, when Major General James McPherson, leading the Army of the Tennessee, was killed in battle during the Battle of Atlanta, by far the most costly casualty count battle of the entire campaign. If you get mired that too deeply in the trenches with what was going on at 315 and then at 318 and 320 and 325, you sort of lose sight of holistically, well, why did the why were they fighting the Battle of Atlanta to begin with? And what was the strategic benefit to be gained if they achieved victory, which Sherman did um, in a pretty lopsided manner as things played out. But, you know, it, just diving in on any of these things anywhere, it doesn't have to be in Georgia. If you just all of a sudden, you know, I tell people when I lead battlefield tours at various places here in the state, no, they didn't parachute out of the sky and just <laughs> land here at Kennesaw Mountain and fight on June the 27th and then they disappeared. Uh, there's a trail that brought them here. There's reasons why they ended up here. There are reasons why they fought here. Mm -hmm. And here's what happened during. Here's what happened immediately after. Here's what happened a month later, two months later, six months later. It's all part of the story. And I think to go through it in, in a chronological fashion, as it truly played out, at least made sense in my sometimes jumbled brain. <laughs> well, you mentioned a bit uh how the Civil War is still being fought in a sense, how it still lives on today. Being in Georgia, the Atlanta campaign, uh, the Savannah campaign, how does the legacy live on today? Uh, and how how is it dealt with? I just spoke, we, we talked about uh, with Charlie Crawford, and we talked a bit about Sherman and kind of how he's viewed today. How does it live on in Georgia today? Well, unfortunately, uh, not incredibly well. Uh, you know, years ago, uh, a lot of the battles that were fought, the closer you get to Atlanta today, the less there is left. In this country, it wasn't really until the 1980s that we started giving a lot of attention or, or credence to historic preservation. Uh, and as the sprawl of Atlanta began in the 1960s, in the early 1970s and into the 1980s, you know, bulldozers came in and just plowed everything up. And, you know, most of where the Battle of Atlanta was fought today is buried deep beneath an asphalt jungle. So you have to get out somewhat 
from Atlanta, the farther out one gets from Atlanta in any direction, the more you are apt to find in terms of battlefield property. Obviously, the Kennesaw Mountain National Battlefield Park is part of the National Park Service, Mm -hmm. as is Fort Pulaski. Uh, So they're very well protected. We don't have to worry about anybody plowing or making an asphalt jungle uh, at either of those locations. Several of the other sites, Fort McAllister, south of Savannah, Pickett's Mill, Paulding County here in Georgia, and some other sites are part of the Georgia State Park System. So they're protected. And there's other efforts. Charlie may have discussed with you a, a fairly recent effort that just began. The American Battlefield Trust is in the process of raising some money to save some battlefield ground for a battle that don't feel bad, listeners, if you've never heard of it, the Battle of Gilgal Church, which took place in uh, early June of 1864. It was part of the maneuvering. uh, Sherman always trying to turn the left flank of the Army of Tennessee, uh, pretty heavy fighting. On the Confederate side, it was Major General Patrick Claiborne's troops and uh, Major General John Schofield and the Army of the Ohio were able to get in position with artillery that they were putting enfilading fire or firing down from the side Claiborne's entire line. So they had to retract the line, fall back, condense the position uh, prior to occupying the the Kennesaw Mountain line uh, and then culminating with the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain on June 27th. So uh, a lot of these sites are protected. Uh, The visitation at many of them has uh, suffered over the years. Certainly, the pandemic uh, has not helped. Um, A lot of the places, actually, I'll use Kennesaw Mountain Battlefield. I live, if I don't have to, if the the traffic in Metro Atlanta is not too bad, which is seldom, um, if I can pick the right time of day and leave my house, take back road in, I can be at the battlefield in less than 10 minutes. Often, if I go, especially during the week, you pull in and they they build a new overflow parking lot prior to the 150th in 2014. The main lot's usually full. The overflow lot is typically full. Once you find a parking spot, and go into the visitor center and the museum, there's usually nobody in there. Mm-hmm. And you, yet you've got all these people. It's a green space right. for Metro Atlanta, so which is fine. Uh, you have people going that there to walk their dogs, ride horses, throw frisbee, jog, hike, bird watch, and all those things are great. And um, there, on more than one occasion, I've led a tour at Kennesaw Mountain, and I always enjoy this, and you can usually tell, but at one time, somebody actually verbalized it. Uh, I had this fairly large group, and I'm up rambling about something that took place on that sector of the battlefield, and a, and a couple, a man and woman, jogged by, and they went 10 or 15 yards past us, and they stopped, and they came back, and they stood in the rear 
and listen to everything else that I was rambling on about. <laughs> and when I finished, the man came up to me and he said, I want to shake your hand. And I, I'm thinking, OK, I looked to see if he had one of these things that was going to shock me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I said, yes, sir. And uh, I said, why do you want to shake my hand? And he said, my wife and I have been running here for 10 years. And we had no idea that a battle was fought here. And I wanted so badly, Andy. I didn't. I'm not that kind of person. I would never do it. But inside me, I was thinking quietly to myself, and I wanted to ask him, did you ever stop and ask yourself why it's called the Kennesaw Mountain National Battlefield Park? (laughs) Uh, But, you know, whatever. So you have a lot of people who visit these parks uh, but they, they're going for other reasons. Mm-hmm. So I think the interest continues to wane. I mean, obviously, in today's political environment, in a lot of circles, you know, people who have not studied this particular part of our history and don't have, and it's not pretty, no part of any country's history is crystal. Mm-hmm. I don't care where you are in the world. You can examine the history of any country, zero exceptions, and you're going to find things that are not pleasant that took place in their respective histories. And it's the same with ours. Uh, It's not spick and span. I mean, there's parts of our history that are ugly Mm -hmm. and you can't pretend it never happened. Uh, You have to talk about it and you have to try to get people to better understand in totality on all fronts uh, what people were we're dealing with. And it's also like I said earlier, we now know what happened. You can't start at the end and work backwards because events didn't play out that way. And it's also unfair, I think, to make judgments on any country's history based on the standards of today. Um, You know, we are living in 2022. And 2022 is a much different country than it was in 1982 mm-hmm. or 1972 or 1962. And I'm not going any farther back because I don't want to date myself too much. Um, but times change. And I have no doubt that 150 years from now, sociologists and anthropologists and historians and others doing research and investigating all the things we're doing today, we'll look back and probably say, what in the world were they thinking? Why were they doing the things they were doing? Whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. You know, price of food, price of gas, who knows, whatever. Uh, it could be anything. So it, it works the same, I think, with our 19th century. It was a different time. It doesn't mean that I'm not saying by any stretch, I'm not condoning the institution of slavery, period. I am not. It was a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, We can prayerfully hope that it never happened, but it did. And it it wasn't just in this country. There were many other countries. Some of them had abolished slavery uh, by the outbreak of the American Civil War, certainly to the detriment of Confederate hopes. Slavery had been abolished in Great Britain, uh, thanks to the work of Wilbur Wilberforce and others many years before the American Civil War. So when the Confederacy is trying to get Great Britain and France to intercede on her behalf, 
they refused to do so primarily because they could not condone the institution of slavery. But mm-hmm. having said that, you you can't pretend that it didn't happen. It, it did happen. But it, it, it's also, I think, unfair to make judgments on anybody and what they did or didn't do 160 years ago based on the standards of what we're doing or not doing today because times change mm-hmm. and customs change and you have to adapt and that's life. And um, so that's why I'm confident. Of course, we won't live to see it, but 160 years or so from now, 200 years from now, uh, historians and others will probably look back and write about uh, what either areas where we were doing good things and we were right, but often they're quick to point out some things never change where we were wrong and things we were doing improperly if it be with the environment or whatever. I mean, there's so many categories, you can just pick one. But, you know, they weren't dealing with things like environmental issues and concerns and the price of gasoline and so forth uh, in that part of the 19th century. It was just, it was a different time. And there were things, unfortunately, the institution of uh, human bondage or slavery was one of them. And there's no way you can dress it up to make it pretty. It's not and never will be. But you can try to understand the people and what they were dealing with and what was happening in this country at the time, along with the institution of slavery. You can't just pull that out of the historical archives and pretend that nothing else was happening and solely only focus in on that. I think it's helpful if you can have a better understanding of what people were trying to deal with in their lives, you know, before the war began, and and certainly becomes much more difficult when you have all this carnage uh, eventually almost surrounding you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that makes history, I think, dynamic and um, continues to hold the interest of a lot of people. But, you know, I will also say that there are a lot of groups that are starting to struggle, you know, historical societies, Civil War roundtables, other organizations that have focused uh, around the American Civil War, just because it seems like with the younger generations coming up, there's not a high degree of fondness anymore for majoring in history to begin with. So they're not studying history. Again, there's always exceptions. We have a lot of wonderful history majors at KSU and at Emory too, but I'm talking by and large general population. Uh, A lot of people are not studying history so much anymore, so they don't really care about it. And um, it's unfortunate because uh, you know, as the old saying, much overused, you know, history tends to repeat itself. Uh, I don't know that that's true entirely, but one cannot forget the history, sort of like Mr. Baldwin's quote that I read, read a minute ago, because so many things make us who we are, uh, and it includes everything in our history, in our own individual histories, the good and bad and the ugly. Because mm-hmm. uh, we're not perfect, none of us are, and uh, at least none of us on this earth are, are perfect. Um, so, 
anyway, it's um, I think in some areas is the interest is is declining, and uh, you know eventually that impacts visitation, and you if you don't have the luxury of being part of like the national park si- service system, um, it's tough mm-hmm. uh, to support because you know it it's not free to keep the grounds clean and people to mow and when trees are taken down by storms, come in and clean everything out so people can continue to walk the trails and, you know, learn about walk the ground where a particular battle played out during the war. Uh, You know, none of that maintenance is free. And if you're suffering at the gate uh, in terms of attendance, eventually uh, things are going to suffer in other areas. So, Yes, there's some of that going on, and that's not unique to Georgia. Um, that's happening in many different locations. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to several people. Even we talked about reenactments. Even in reenactments, we see the same thing, uh, especially since COVID. The participation and the interest has gone down, um, and it's unfortunate. So it's important to support history, um, support authors like you, Um, I encourage listeners to pick up a copy of the book. Uh, I'll include a link in the description so that you can click on it. Uh, Is there a way that listeners can get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Uh, Yes. The easiest way is to go to my website. Uh, It's pretty easy to remember the URL. Maybe you can share it. uh, Yeah, I'll I'll put it in the notes for sure. But it's it's civilwarhistorian.net. And you can send me a message through my website. Uh, it's got links if you're interested, if you use Facebook or Twitter or some other social media platforms, uh, you can follow me on any of those. And I try to post, you know, when I've got things going on, if it's uh, book signings or t- battlefield tours or whatever. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I can't field uh, a lot of research questions. Uh, mm-hmm. People are so kind and nice, and they'll send me an email through my website and want me to like research their family history. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm sorry, I just can't do that. Um, you know, I don't. I simply don't have time to do that. Uh, I still, over the next three months, I, I have seven more medical procedures uh, that I have to have done. Uh, as a result of the esophageal surgery that I had done in April of 2021, so I'm completely healthy and fine, and and uh, but I've got these things that I, I have to have taken care of, so that occupies quite a bit of my time. But you know, if it's something relatively simple, uh, I'll help anyone however I can. But um, unfortunately. If you know your great grandfather's name, <laughs> you want me to, and you want me, and again, I understand that's why how a lot of people initially become interested uh, in the American Civil War is finding out. Wait a minute, I had you know for younger generations, for me, it would have been my uh, great great grandfather, but for some, you know, my children, for example. It's their great, great, great grandfather. Mm-hmm. And the younger you go, the farther back your ancestor is. But it doesn't matter if people find out, men or women, um, find out 
that they had an ancestor that fought with a particular unit north or south, automatically they're interested and they want to learn more about uh, their ancestor and where he fought, uh, the battles he participated in, et cetera, et cetera. And all that information is available, but unfortunately, um, I can't always do all the work in, in tracking that down. But I usually try to steer people in a direction. I never just don't respond and shut people off. That's not kind or the right thing to do. Uh, if I can't help someone, I usually try to, at minimum, steer them in the direction of here's a couple of websites. National Park Service has a wonderful database called the Soldiers and Sailors Database. It's absolutely free to use. Uh, you can find a lot of information, but the more you know, it's like anything else. The more you know about your ancestor going in, the better the results on the backside. Mm -hmm. And especially if they have a common name. If someone says, my great-grandfather, John Smith, fought in the Civil War, and I think he was in a Confederate regiment, maybe from Tennessee. Well, you know, talk about <laughs> needle in a haystack. Right. Uh, so the more information you have on the front end, the better your odds of, of finding information about your ancestor. And there are subscription sites Fold3, which is a subsidiary of Ancestry.com, it's probably one of the better ones. It's not free. Uh, you have There is an annual subscription. I don't remember off the top of my head what the fee is, but they've digitized um, most of the military records from the National Archives and other places from not only the American Civil War, but back to the American Revolution, um, the War of 1812, Mexican-American War, the Civil War, uh, the Spanish-American War, World War I, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ironically, I have more information on my ancestor that was in the American Revolution that was with General Washington at Yorktown. My ancestor, being a Virginian, uh, was in the Continental Army, and I have more information on him than I do on my Schaefer and direct ancestor, great-great-grandfather, who fought in the Confederate cavalry, again, being a Virginian, during the American Civil War. So sometimes on the Confederate side, the paper trail can be pretty sparse for a lot of different reasons. Either the records were never kept intact to begin with, or, as we all know, when the Confederate government had to quickly flee Richmond in early April of 1865 after the federal breakthrough at the Battle of Five Forks, uh, General Lee notified President Jefferson Davis they had to evacuate Richmond that day. So quickly they mustered up a few uh, locomotives and boxcars and what they could get out, they got out of Richmond and what they could not get out, they burned. So many Confederate records went up in smoke in early April of 1865. So maybe your ancestor had a huge file, perhaps mine did, uh, <laughs> but all I've been able to find are a couple of muster records. Uh, so at least I know he wasn't a deserter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he was there to answer the muster call, but 
it's ironic because it's another thing that makes history fascinating. You never know what you're going to find. And and I've got a treasure trove of information on my ancestor that was in the American Revolution and have got very little on my ancestor that was in the American Civil War. So <laughs> no figure. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure Absolutely. talking to you. And I encourage listeners again to pick up your book day by day through the Civil War in Georgia. Thank you very much. And I've enjoyed the time and uh, hope everyone has a, a safe and pleasurable evening. Thank you. Thank you. Amy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. Please like, share and subscribe to help the podcast grow. I hope you'll join us next week. And as always, please head to the thecivilwarcenter.com to learn more. And you can find us on Patreon in the link below. Please consider donating to help this podcast continue. Have a great week.